Joe Farrell is the ACT's Australian of the Year for 2024 and a champion for women in the still very blokey world of construction. Joe started out as an apprentice carpenter and has worked her way up to become the general manager of a major construction company. She also founded the not-for-profit Build Like a Girl, which helps women get an easier start in trades than she had. Joe Farrell, welcome to The Year That Made Me. Thank you so much for having me, Julian. Joe, you grew up in Wollongong, and I gather you were drawn to construction from an early age. Yeah, I was. I was always a, a big Lego kid and loved kind of, you know, building things with hands. So I wasn't a I wasn't a Barbie girl, which um, <laughs> which um, may be a bit controversial now. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I was I was always drawn to it, and I really loved seeing construction sites even when I was little and kind of seeing things come together. So I think I or you know had a natural attraction to it from a young age. But you know, being in Wollongong at the time was a very working class place, and and. Um, not a lot of um, women, well, there were none that I knew um, as I sort of went through high school and, and popped out the other side that were actually um, in construction at the time. Yeah, so when it came to things like doing work experience in year 10, did you feel that there were options available to you that, could, that you could sort of explore those interests? Oh, absolutely not. No. Um, so, um, you know, the usual phase of the year 10 work experience that just about everybody does. So all the all the boys at school were off to the steelworks because their dads or uncles or brothers um, worked there and that was the, the done thing. And when I sort of said to the careers advisor, um, well, I'd love to, to go and do that too because I'm really interested in, in an apprenticeship. And he turned around and said, if you want an apprenticeship, go and be a hairdresser. And um, and I said, no, this is not what I'm talking about. So it was not encouraged and, and there was no option whatsoever put forward and, and no support around it. And so it was actually my mum who organised for me to go to Wollongong University and sit with the mechanical engineering faculty, which is not really <laughs> the, the same sort of thing, but that was the closest that I could get. So definitely not encouraged at school at all. You did eventually manage to get an apprenticeship. Uh, how hard was it and how did you do it? Yeah, so finished school and, and look, I, I struggled a little bit at school in terms of the structure and, and learning. I'm a more of a kind of see it and, and do it person. So mm. I wasn't made for university study after coming out of school and, and, you know, really wanted that apprenticeship. And so this was in 1996. You know, there was no seek.com. There was no internet you know, sending people your, your CV or your details. It was door knocking and, and going around with a printed copy of your resume and asking for a job and looking in the newspaper and applying for roles. And there were a lot of apprenticeship roles available at that time. But every time I applied, I would either get no response at all or I was told that they don't employ women or, you know, I wouldn't be strong enough or I wouldn't be suitable for the role or I would be a distraction on site for the men um, there was all of these things that were said, so I didn't really even get a look in. And straight after school, I applied for about 150 different jobs. I think I hit up wow. just about every every builder in Wollongong at the time. And uh, the answer was, was no every single time. So it was incredibly difficult. And eventually, I, I wore down one particular builder who I just kept turning up and annoying him and I think he just caved in but the proviso was that I would work for nothing for, for three months to prove myself before he would even contemplate paying me and putting me on as an apprentice. For so many people that would be a complete turn off not just for the individual job but for the industry. Why did you keep going Joe? It was just something I really wanted to do and I thought that if that was a sacrifice I'd have to make and that was my only way in then I would just have to accept it and take it and 
work hard to prove that I did deserve the job. It was the only option. If I didn't take that option, there was nothing else. I wanted it more, you know, that feeling was stronger than the feeling of, well, this is going to be hard and you're not going to get paid, but, you know, work around it. So I worked um, in a hardware store on the, you know, on the weekends. I, I worked at night in a pub. I worked at a cafe. I worked sort of all these other jobs around the clock to supplement the fact I wasn't getting paid during the day. How were you treated on the site when you began your apprenticeship? Oh, look, I won't go into the sorted details of it, but the guys on the site definitely decided that it would turn into a battle of wills about how uncomfortable they could make me and how much I could stick it out. So I had just about every, I guess, thing that you could do to an apprentice um, done to me. Um, so the, you know, locking, locking, being locked in the portaloo and being pushed around inside that, um, you know, there were various other things they would do to my tools or my lunchbox or, you know, different things. There was, there was a lot of really poor behavior that was very targeted and mm. I'm not going to stand here for a second and pretend it was easy. It wasn't. There were there were many times that I wanted to just not turn up again. But I had a really supportive family, and they said you've just got to go back and keep proving that you belong there and and wear them down. And and so that's that's how it worked out. Did you eventually win them over, or was it sort of a a, a kind of persistence, but never really a resolution? I think it was a begrudging acceptance of I just kept turning up and no matter what they did, it didn't deter me. And so I think that eventually they got tired of it. And also I was doing the work. I was still working alongside them. I was still doing the job and I was contributing. So I think that it became, um, I'm not, I'm not going to say that those particular individuals at that time for two years accepted me. I don't think they ever did accept me, but I think there was a begrudging kind of acknowledgement that, well, she's here and you know, we may as well make it work. Um, but I was never, you know, I would sit by myself having lunch. You know, there was never any, I, I wouldn't get invited to the pub after work. There was no real camaraderie where I, where I was fully sort of integrated into them. They just didn't, didn't accept me in that way. We're speaking with Joe Farrell, the ACT Australian of the Year for 2024. And Joe, you persisted in the industry. You started working your way up. Uh, what year have you chosen as the year that made you? Look, there's probably really key points that I could probably give you more than one, mm. but I would say it'd be around, I think, 2007, where I'd finished my apprenticeship, I'd moved into a leading hand role, which I was told I'd never be able to do because no one would ever do what I asked them to. I became a supervisor. I was told, you can't be a supervisor. Guys will never listen to you. Well, I did that. So there was this sort of slow building up of you know skills and confidence and, and moving through and I decided that I wanted to learn more and grow more. So I was moving through a phase of doing a bit more study. I, I studied my Cert 4 so I could get a builder's license and I became a, a project manager with a facade company. And so I then started actually managing the entire project and, and running the crews and, and doing all of that. And I was told I'd never be able to do that either. Um, so I was making these moves, but I, I got to a point where I came to this grinding halt at that time again and it came down to I was you know in this company I was one of four project managers the other three project managers were men and I, I found out that I was getting paid a third of what they were even though I, I was managing more projects bringing in more clients um, had very happy clients and, and was actually you know doing a good job um, mm. if you were to measure it um, from a performance perspective and I, I sort of once you find out that you're getting underpaid so much um, compared to your peers. It, it sort of sits inside you and you can't get rid of it. So, What did you do about it, Joe? 
I at that time the the key moment in all of this was I I had that realization, but I also then um, was connected to the NAWIC organisation, which is the National Association of Women in Construction in Sydney. And I was paired with a mentor um, through an event and her name is Alison Mirams and, and she's the, um, well, she, she was up until yesterday the executive chair of Roberts Co, a very large company. And, and, and she was talking to me about value and valuing yourself. And I told her about this problem and she said that I've got to walk in there and I've got to you know, really be quite firm in a demand to say, I expect to be paid the same as these guys if I'm doing the same job. And I was terrified of that. I was terrified of that conversation and and raising that and didn't know how to navigate it. But she said that if I'm not going to value myself, why would anybody else value me? And and so I went in there and and I took her advice and, and I was absolutely petrified. And and she said, be go in there and prepare to have the conversation, but if they say no, you need to have a resignation letter sitting there ready because they're never going to value you if they don't do it now. And so I had to do that and it was a really confronting experience. I walked in and had the conversation with the directors and I told them that I don't believe it was fair that I was being so grossly underpaid and their response to me was that I should be grateful that I have a job, that they don't employ women usually in jobs like this and the fact that I'm there um, should be more than enough, um, I guess, uh, you know, of a demonstration of, of their commitment to me. and, and So that, they didn't um, at all engage with the actual pay inequity? Not at all. No, mm. no. And, and they said that they wouldn't at all. Um, and um, so, yeah, it was, it was really demoralising in terms of having to feel grateful that I even had a job despite the fact that I was doing so well. So that was really hard um and then i had to make the decision to resign which i which i did and and they were really quite you know angry and negative about that but um it came down to the value and um about a week later i applied and got a job where i went from being paid forty five thousand dollars as opposed to my peers of being paid 120 and i walked into a job the following week and got paid one hundred and forty thousand dollars without batting an eyelid (laughs) wow that's that's fantastic but a really big thing to do to actually put it all on the line and walk away from the job. Is that what people still have to do today to try and achieve what seems like the most basic level of fairness of pay equity? Absolutely. If I'm doing public speaking or or sitting on a panel and talking and these sorts of things are discussed afterwards, I'm inevitably approached by multitudes of women who come and tell me a similar story. Um, mm. that they're either too scared to go and ask to be paid the same as someone doing, you know, someone else doing the same job at the same level or that they've had the conversation and had that exact same thing um, said to them that they should just be grateful for where they are. So it's a very prevalent problem. The gender pay gap is a constant conversation and I think that we need to shine the light on it because the other thing it does is that we're going to lose good talent out of our industry if we don't start valuing women and paying them what they deserve. We're speaking with Joe Farrell on The Year That Made Me, Joe, and we've heard about that critical moment where you really confronted the gender inequity of pay in the construction industry. You've gone on to do some amazing things in the industry and around the world. Could you tell us about the years that followed that big change? You, um, you had a bit of a health scare and, and ended up working in Lithuania. Yeah, so so worked in Sydney for a few more years after that the, the pay discussion and the big change, and then I 
uh, a week before my 30th birthday, I uh, had a pretty significant um, health event where I, I had to have a surgery and subsequently wasn't able then to have children. And so mm. it was a big life changing point for me at that age and to have that happen. And I suppose it made me stop and all of a sudden take a look at where I was and what I was doing. I'd been so focused on my career and you know, building my career and navigating all of these challenges and barriers that I looked at my friends who had sort of gone overseas and traveled and had done all these other things and realized I'd done none of that. And mm. I didn't real I didn't think that I was sort of, you know, feeling fulfilled within that space. And, and so after that health scare, I, I spoke to my parents and said, I think I need to go and see the world and travel and explore. And so that's what I did. I, I packed up. I had an EU passport from my dad, who was Irish. So I was able to travel travel freely overseas and stay as long as I liked. And so I said to mum and dad, look, I'm going to go. And when the money runs out, I'll come home. So now, Joe, a lot of people do the European vacation, but not many end up working <laughs> on decommissioning a nuclear plant in Lithuania. How did that happen? <laughs> So I'd been overseas for a little while and I started running out of money really quickly. Um, so I uh, put my CV out and um, to various places in the UK and got a phone call out of the blue, which I'll be honest, I thought was a joke. And I was probably <laughs> a little bit sarcastic on the phone because I actually thought it was a prank. And he was saying, look, I've got this job. It's a great job. You know, it's great pay. But the catch is it's in Lithuania. And so I, I jumped on my computer and went, I don't even know where Lithuania is. Um, and so, yeah, and then I was I was just being really condescending to this poor man on the phone because I just thought it was an absolute prank and I was waiting for the punchline. But he then sent me a flight, you know, tickets for a flight to Lithuania. He gave me the details of where this site was located. And a couple of days later, I landed in minus 16 degree weather into, you know, the main airport in Vilnius. I was picked up by a Russian man in a car, who couldn't speak any English whatsoever. Um, I was driven two hours outside of the town and I thought, oh God, I've made a terrible mistake. This is, you know, I've just put myself in a really bad situation. Mm. And then all of a sudden out pops this nuclear power plant and it's a bustling site. And it was part of an EU commitment to Lithuania when they joined the EU to decommission this plant um, because it was a Chernobyl type ex-Soviet plant. And um so, yeah, we were there and there were Bulgarians and Russians and Lithuanians and Ukrainians and Germans and English people and and one little Aussie, which was me. <laughs> one Aussie and one woman on site, I gather. Yep, um, yep. What was it like being the only woman on site? I suppose is the sexism in the construction industry in a workplace like a nuclear plant in Lithuania the same as what you encountered starting up in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. There was no other females that were actually out on site. All the other females, so there was probably about 12 they were all inside the office. They weren't permitted mm. to go out on site and, and they were all receptionists and EAs and um, and had administration roles. I was allocated a Lithuanian and a Russian translator to help me and they would come out on site with me, but they weren't permitted to speak directly to the workers and the workers weren't permitted to speak to them directly either. And it was a big culture shift for me in terms of understanding their culture and their interaction with women and how they view women. And it was a, um, yeah, pretty steep learning curve for the guys out there to understand that I was there to tell them what to do and tell them what was right and wrong. So it was bumpy for the first few months. And I quickly realized that I was never going to survive out there if I didn't learn to speak Russian, which was the, the dominant language because it was an ex-Soviet town mm. and workplace. So 80% ethnic Russian, um, 
And so I did a crash course with my um, translator and very quickly wanted to learn all the swear words and all the other words that they were probably (laughs) pointing in my direction so I could pick up on them. And so I sort of had an intensive um, tutoring lesson into that and into reading and writing Russian and, and understanding it. And I'll never forget the day that I went out there and we'd had a conversation via the translators on a, on a pretty significant issue that was wrong. And as I turned around, they all started talking amongst themselves and, and calling me various things. And so I turned around and in Russian said, I know how to speak your language now. And I just remember seeing them go white as a sheet. And, you know, from that time on, the, the conversation changed, the relationship changed, and they realized that I was there to stay and I was there to actually work with them. And so I think the other thing was is that there was probably a bit of arrogance on my behalf to walk in there and expect them to speak English to me um, mm. when I was in their world. And so it was really important for me from a respect level to learn their language and learn their culture and understand what the interaction had to be because that's really all they wanted. They, they wanted me to be like them. And so the whole dynamic changed, the whole relationship changed once I actually started showing the respect to speak their language and not force them to speak mine. Mm. When you came back to Australia, did you find the industry had changed much? Was it easier for you to get a job with the international experience that you now had? No, so... I came back to Australia because my dad was diagnosed with dementia. At the time, I actually didn't have a plan to come back straight away. I was quite happy to travel because I've traveled to 45 countries. And I had to come back because we we had this diagnosis with dad and he was actually deteriorating pretty rapidly. I didn't want to go back to Sydney. Um, I'd already made that decision. And so the next place to go was Canberra, which would be close enough to mum and dad. So Canberra is a very clicky place in the construction industry. It's very relationship-driven. And if you're from the outside and don't have those relationships, you can find it very difficult um, to establish yourself. And so um, I was told, I think, you know, one of the second days I was in Canberra and, and sent my CV out, a recruiter told me that I don't have enough experience for a certain job. And and I was really offended by that, given that I'd just come from the type of job from overseas, which has never even been done in Australia from a technicality perspective. And and I found that really offensive. But what it was, it wasn't that I wasn't qualified. It's that no one knew who I was. And because here, because of the relationship driving everything that happens in our industry in Canberra here, it, I didn't have that. And, and so that was the issue. And so it took me a while to reestablish. And, and so I guess that almost felt like I'd stepped backwards in my career journey. And so again, it was that learning curve and adapting to that environment and understanding how it works. Joe, tell us about Build Like a Girl. So Build Like a Girl came about because when I was appointed as the general manager for Kane in early 2020, it was February 2020 actually, some almost four years, I there was a bit of a profile around that because there's not too many other women who are in the same sort of role. So it created a profile and it created a presence. And what that did was then uh, women women were contacting me via social media and all other things, starting to tell me about their struggles, their issues with either breaking into the industry from a trade perspective or the other issues that we've spoken around about salary and progression and acknowledgement. And so I was just inundated by just so many stories and it actually made me incredibly frustrated and incredibly angry, to be honest. It was actual, it was rage that, mm. you know, it had been two and a half decades of me being in this industry, forging a path for myself and, and realizing that all of these other women are having exactly the same challenges and that in 
25 years, the industry hadn't changed its mentality around the value of women in industry. And so I sat down one weekend at my dining room table and said, how do I fix this? How do I actually address this problem? And that's how Build Like a Girl was born. And I make it sound really simple that you can sit there in one weekend and create an entire not-for-profit and everything else. It's not that simple, but, <laughs> but, um, but that was how it started. And obviously that builds on the importance of mentorship and role models and uh, other women in the industry who can help you along. Do you think for a young woman starting off in the construction industry in Australia today that they're likely to experience the same sort of bullying and exclusion that you had to cop when you started your apprenticeship? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, it's still very prevalent. It's still occurring. And out of the 27 women that we're currently mentoring and supporting, late last year, we had a couple of them approach us with some pretty serious sexual harassment and bullying claims that we've had to navigate with them. So that's that's just in, in my sphere at the moment, notwithstanding where it happens everywhere else. So yes, absolutely, it's still happening. And we have a serious entrenched cultural problem that needs to be addressed because that needs to be stamped out. Joe, if there are people listening who think, well, I'd really like to support women in the construction industry, is there a way of going about trying to easily source female tradies and and actually promoting female participation with your custom? I think it starts with if, if anyone's out there and they're a parent and they're listening and your child, whether they're, uh, you know, a boy or girl or on the gender diverse spectrum, if they turn around and say, I want to be a tradesperson, encourage it. Don't tell them they can't do it. And and a lot of the time I'm having conversations with parents who don't believe that being a tradesperson is, is a good career for their daughter to, to take. And, I, and so then I give them all the reasons why it is. So, you know, from a family perspective, encourage it. From a school perspective, if you're a careers advisor or a teacher or, or someone in a school, encourage it. If you're an employer, reach out to all of the organisations. You have NARWIC, you have Tradeswomen Australia, you have Empowered Women in Trades, you have us, you have all of these organisations out there who are sitting there waiting to help you. So there's plenty of places you can go as an employer to say, you know, tell me how I can employ more women in my organisation across all levels. So, you know, it's it's not for lack of resources or um, lack of women out there. It's lack of effort for people to actually look into it and say, I need to I need to put a bit of effort into this and I need to actually, as a manager, as a leader, lead by example and have these conversations to start changing the way my business behaves. And all of that is, if we want to improve behaviour in construction, if we want to actually step up and start seeing better projects, seeing better behaviours out of our sites, then that's the conversation that has to happen. Well, good on you for doing the hard yards, Joe. Congratulations on being the ACT's Australian of the Year in 2024. And thanks very much for joining us on The Year That Made Me. That's okay. Did you want to know what my song was? (laughs) Oh, yes, absolutely. We always do finish up with a piece of music. What have you chosen for us? So my song is All I Know So Far from Pink. And why have you chosen that? It resonates because within that song, there's lyrics around putting on your armour and fighting the fight, but also letting the walls crack and letting the light in. And I think that just aptly describes my journey in construction and the ups and downs that I've experienced throughout. And I think saying all I know so far, you know, means that I don't don't know everything yet. I'm still learning and I'm still on the journey. (laughs) Joe Farrell, thanks again. No, thank you so much, Julian. I appreciate it. Haven't always been this way I wasn't born a renegade I felt alone, still feel afraid I stumble through it anyway 
I wish someone would have told me that this life is ours to choose. No one's handing you the keys or a book with all the rules. The little that I know I'll tell you. When they dress you up in lies and you're left naked with the truth. Let them drag you through hell, they can't tell you to change who you are. And when ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.